Yep. <laughs> I won't do that tonight. <laughs> You're not going to do the chickens? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I'll fight through. Because <laughs> there's no, there's no other show where you're you're going to hear Nick Redfern do the chicken. I guess uh, you're famous for the the um, pigeon, but uh, the 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 chicken is not uh, the the mm. chicken is is uh, it's a deep cut actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's as they say on Muddy Python. Enough gay banter. Uh, let's see uh let's do our oh you know what uh i keep doing the anti-eth opening i you know what every time i have somebody on the the, the theme is is tends to be anti-extraterrestrial as it is today so i guess i better play the anti-eth one no the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh not a viable solution to this we we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is, um, comes, from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain. It's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso. This is a very hastily, uh, well, not really hastily. We talked about this about uh, a week ago, I think, maybe six days ago. Every time Nick comes out with a new book, it means somebody's turned around. And it also means that I should probably have a, uh, <laughs> probably have a talk with him. Anybody listening to this show, and probably almost any paranormal show, knows who Nick is. They know what he's done. And you know what you've done, Nick. And... Uh, <laughs> 
and probably some of his books, of which there are gazillions, uh, Covert Agenda, FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, what, NASA Conspiracies. I saw one in your list, Space Girl Dead on Spaghetti Junction. Is that an actual book you wrote? <laughs> that is a real book, yeah. It's a collection of um, like early articles I wrote from, like, 82 right up to the present day. Yeah, John Downs put it out, and um, there was actually a story... Um, of a of a space girl, uh, a space alien woman, uh, allegedly found on a place in the central England called Spaghetti Junction. What it is, it's like these massive roads, which if you look at it from above, it looks like a plate of spaghetti. It's yeah. become it's like in in slang terms, it became known as Spaghetti Junction. And in this sort of Midlands part of England where I grew up, there was a couple of UFO research groups and one of them spread this story that there was like this space girl found dead on spaghetti junction so uh, <laughs> and that's when i first, kind of ran about the time i started <laughs> writing back in the early 80s and uh, so i thought that'd be kind of a cool title for uh, for the book so. yeah that's a great title. <laughs> is that available anywhere at, at, anymore or does john downs just have them well, John published it, but it's published as a print-on-demand, so you, you can still quite easily buy it. But I can probably get a copy for you anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> just, yeah. I just want somebody you to You might be... like it, because it's all, it's all like my... Uh, I mean, when I first left school in 82, or when I left school in 82, I should say, um, I worked on a... Me and five friends, we worked on a magazine called Zero, and um, that was the first writing I did. It was like gig reviews and interviewing bands, and that's... And I actually found a couple of old issues of it when I was writing the book for John. And um, and yeah. so those old 82 articles are in there and a few other things as well. So. Uh, yeah, I'd like to read it. I mean, and the other thing is when I'm done with it, I'm going to put it on my shelf next to other strange titles like Who Moved My Cheese and uh, Uh-Oh. <laughs> I've got a book that actually the title is Uh-Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Life's Riddle Solved is another one of my favorites because you wonder why you have any other books if you've got Life's Riddle Solved. Um, uh, however, Nick's newest book, and there's a big sticker on the front or something that looks like a sticker, says, Sequel to Body Snatchers in the Desert. The new book is Roswell UFO Conspiracy. The Roswell UFO Conspiracy. Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret uh, by Nick Redfern. Maybe... For the three people that don't know what Body Snatchers in the Desert is, and because how many shows have you done on this on this book so far? Just a couple. Uh, yet two. That's it. Okay, because um, the, the, for the three people that haven't heard what Body Snatchers in the Desert was, just to remind them, um, can you give like a tiny synopsis uh, at, uh, first here, and then we'll get into the kind of the meat of the uh, new book. Yeah. Well, Body Snatchers came out in two thousand and five. And it was, well, it was published in 2005, but so to sort of work backwards, the manuscript was handed over in 2004, wrote it in 2003 through 2004. But the people I interviewed for the book, three or four sources and whistleblowers, so to speak, they, those interviews actually go back to 2001. So we're talking 16 years ago now when the original interviews were done and 12 years since Body Snatchers came out. And basically, it presents like a very alternative and controversial theory for what happened outside of Roswell in July 47 on the Foster Ranch. Now, you know, there are multiple theories, like the Air Force has the mogul balloons and the crash test dummies, and then 
ufology obviously has the UFO angle and, and all sorts of other different theories as well. But the one that was given to, well, not just given to me, because I talk about this angle in the new book, though, Actually, quite a few people were given the story. But anyway, the, the story is that in the sort of the immediate post-war era, when you had, like, Operation Paperclip bringing Nazi scientists over, that there was a very deeply buried similar program to bring a lot of Japanese technology over, which when, so when I say tech and technology, I don't mean, you know, sort of rocketry and that thing kind of thing, but more along the lines of highly sophisticated balloons that the Japanese were planning to attack the US with had Hiroshima and Nagasaki not happened. And, you know, they certainly had the Fogo balloons of the Second World War, these um, balloon bombs, as they were known. But these are going to be much more sophisticated balloons. And um, supposedly when the this sort of plan was arranged to get the uh, the Japanese sort of technology and the people involved in the programs over here um as well as that there was interest in getting hold in all the medical records and also some of the people who experimented on by japan's unit 731 which was kind of like um nazi germany's joseph mengele and all his cronies yeah. you know doing sort of bizarre experiments on people and so the the, the to boil it down, the story in Body Snatchers is that in, in the uh, 1947 and possibly as early as 45 and 46, a number of experiments were undertaken in the New Mexico desert from various installations. Some of these uh, test flights crashed and had on board, in some cases, Japanese people who... Um, uh, who actually may have piloted one or two of them. Others were reportedly handicapped, physically handicapped people, and also um, Japanese, uh, Japanese POWs and things like that. Um, so, in other words, that's sort of the basic scenario, sort of a, an early Cold War um, secret operation to test fly radical aircraft, and that when, they, when these things went wrong, and like with the one on the Roswell, uh, ranch, uh, which was recovered, material found, I should say, by Matt Brazel, the rancher. Um, it was all hidden behind a, a cover-up of weather balloons and flying saucers um, to keep sort of the darker secret hidden. But not so much just to hide what happened, but to hide the fact that some sort of um, paperclip-type deal had been done with the Japanese. How well supported was this in the book? Well, of course, according to you, of course, it was wonderfully well supported. But what, what kind of crap was thrown at you? You know, what did people say? I mean, I remember some people saying, you know, where did you get this? And this is ridiculous. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of it is, is belief based because, um, as you will probably describe to us, Roswell is kind of like a it, it's it's a creation myth, and people don't like when you mess with a creation myth. Well, yeah, I mean. One of the things that I would say is that, you know, the, the book was published by Simon and & Schuster. And, you know, because it was such a controversial story, this was the first time and actually the only time in writing a book that I have, I've done 42 books now. And this is the only occasion out of 42 where I had extensive dialogue with Simon and Schuster's lawyers and they went over everything with like a fine tooth comb because the story was so controversial hmm. and you know it was painting some very dark pictures and so although there are two people in the book who I name as the Colonel and the Black Widow although they're not named yeah. they're not anonymous 
they are, their names were, were omitted, which, you know, is a fine line between anonymous and omitted. But they weren't anonymous in the sense that um, nobody knew who they were apart from me. I mean, all of the interviewees, like with all my books, um, if you interview someone, the publisher demands, well, demands, they ask for, they ask for a release form. All the people I interviewed for that book had to provide release forms which contained their real names and their addresses and phone numbers so that, if necessary, they could have been contacted to see if I quoted them correctly, etc., etc. So, in other words, you know, these sources that I talk about and people criticise me for using unnamed or unknown sources, they weren't unnamed, they weren't unknown. They were... It was a, a decision was taken on their part that if you want the story, I don't want to be named. But the publisher insisted, well, if you're not going to be named, at least we need to know for sure that, you know, you are who you claim to be. So, you know, but for some people in ufology, that, that wasn't enough. And, and on the one hand, I get that. I totally get it that, you know, it's like, but it's kind of like with Deep Throat, you know, Watergate. I mean, we didn't know what... Uh, Deep Throat's name for years, or well, decades actually, but that didn't prevent him from being a major player that, in the in the uh, situation that brought down Nixon. Um, so you know it's kind of a similar thing, but one of the things that all of the people said, pretty much um, across the board, was that the reason why they wanted anonymity was because that. Well, I remember one of them actually said something along the lines of, "We were just talking about aliens." you know, we wouldn't be worried for our, potentially our lives. Talking about classified sort of um, diabolical experiments and, you know, human guinea pigs, that was, it was that issue that prompted the anonymity. They were just fearful of opening a door which could have, from their perspective, you know, caused problems. Um, but that anonymity angle... Uh, for, for a number of people in ufology who were critical of the book, they use that as sort of leverage to bolster their argument. Um, even though I told them, I said, look, you know, there's a paper trail here that goes from me interviewing them to having to get a release form to the publisher having the release form and the publisher having their name, full address and phone number. You know, so um, in that sense... There was a degree of credibility there, but I understand also why some people may have been frustrated by the fact that you know there were whistleblowers. So. You know what's crazy as you say that is that their concern that somebody is saying something that not not because it implicates the government doing something horrible vis-a-vis -vis the story you just gave us, but they're concerned because it doesn't square with the with the Roswell legend exactly. which, which is a very weird thing to be concerned about I guess I mean you you would probably be more concerned if somebody was saying that they're you know I, I don't know if it's that extraordinary claims thing but you know were all the uh, witnesses vetted in every single UFO book ever written on Roswell no they weren't um, so I guess at the at certainly not I'm, I'm sure as, as well that most UFO books um, you know the lawyers weren't brought in. I mean, most Roswell books, I'm pretty sure, you know, lawyers weren't brought in to get release forms and speak to these people and everything else, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, when you said about, you know, about it sort of 
you know, affecting the sort of Roswell law, L-O-R-E, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, when I wrote the book, or when I was writing it and doing the research and planning on writing the book, I knew exactly what the response of mainstream ufology would be, yeah. that they would deny it even before they'd read it. Because the, the big problem with Roswell is that it's been sort of elevated to such a stratospheric level that it can make or break the subject, or at least aspects, major aspects of the subject. Mm -hmm. You know, if if the most credible, in many people's eyes, if the most credible crashed UFO case collapses, what does that then say about all the other UFO crash cases that aren't quite as good, you know, like yeah. Aztec or Kingman or whatever, right. uh, or Kecksburg? So, in other words, the ufology's biggest problem, as I see it, is not so much championing Roswell, but elevating it to, you know, the the UFO case. I mean, ufology... Yeah, that's why major I part called it, it the... Uh, but, that's that's yeah. why I called it the, the, the uh, creation myth. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the... Um, let's say the Socorro case, 64, a very credible, fascinating, extremely well-known case. But if it was proved to be a hoax, ufology won't collapse. And it's the same, say, for example, you know, the, um, the McMinnville photograph. If that was proved, you know, to be a fake, a lot of people might be disappointed, but ufology won't collapse. Yeah. But by elevating Roswell to such a level, if it does collapse as a UFO, UFO incident, the ramifications will be so big, not because, you know, if it was left as just another interesting case, that wouldn't happen. Right. But ufologists put it all, all its eggs in one basket, and that basket is the Roswell basket. And that's why there was so much anti-Nick anti kind of comments, because yes. they knew, that whether anybody said it or not, they realized that the stakes were so high that if I came through with something solid, all their work, all their theories, all their statements would be gone. And so it was a case of, we've just got to stop this in its tracks, you know, uh, which they did. Yeah, I, <laughs> the, the, I think another complaint that might have come up was, do you have, and, and you know, I, I'm satisfied by reading both these books, but then again, I'm biased. And also, I, I, I full disclosure, I haven't read all of uh, the new one yet. I'm, I think about 40, 50 pages from the end. Could you find an internal consistency in what people said, what people said that didn't know each other, and then on top of that, um, documents? Uh, I, I think you have, but maybe you could, you could describe your, you know, the, the correspondences you found, which really felt yeah. like buttress your case, and that's, you know, how you would answer any kind of critics who actually were listening. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the four people who primarily provided the information, one was an elderly woman who in the book, in Body Snatchers, I called the Black Widow. Mm -hmm. Now, as I point out in the new book, The Roswell UFO Conspiracy, I related all what they re told me but I didn't sort of expand or really go into how I met the people. Now, in the new book, I talk about how I met this woman, the Black Widow, why I called her that name, and, and how, we, how we sort of touched base and finally met. Um, now, she actually worked at the Oak Ridge installation, which was heavily involved in sort of, you know, the Second World War atomic uh, bomb research, and, um, and certainly, you know, in the immediate years afterwards with atomic energy. She told me how she was aware of certain experiments that had gone gone on involving um, what she said were handi physically handicapped people and Japanese people involved in high-altitude experimentation, like high-altitude massive balloons and things like this to, uh, 
you know, to determine the effects of high altitude exposure on people and some of these experiments had gone wrong and these massive balloons had come down in the desert and so on. So she told me that side of the story. Now, two of the other guys, well, two of the guys, I should say, um, had worked in the 1950s in the field of, of counterintelligence. And they told me that independently that they had read um, files that told, back in the 50s that told the story of what really happened at Roswell. Now, these... One of the things I, it's important to stress, these were not the original Roswell files that they met, and, and none of the people I interviewed was ever at Roswell. Um, the, as I said, the Black Widow, she uh, worked at Oak Ridge and got all her information from there. These two guys read files in the 50s that told the story. Now, one of these guys um, was also uh, at, at Cross Paths, with a man who I call in the book the Colonel, and again, whose name is all on file, etc. And he, um, in the 60s, read similar files. And with hindsight, it's possible, but I, I can't prove this, but they could actually have been the same files, but they were sort of a historical look back at the way in which... It, they were basically files that were it was sort of a history of how intelligence agencies had manipulated the UFO subject um, as a cover for other things, and it was teaching them, you know, how it had worked and and and, how, and why it was successful on various occasions and so on. Yeah. And now, one of the things I talk about in the new book was that these people, although I spoke to them independently and they came from different backgrounds, they actually were all somehow interlinked, that they already knew each other. And I was never able to get out of them how exactly that came to be and that was it was kind of odd because that was one part of the story that they didn't want to go into but there was something that had brought them together in relation to them all knowing this now you know i can only speculate that maybe it's so there's two possibilities or several possibilities one is that you know because of what they knew and if the whole thing was covered up and there were certain people who did know maybe they were brought taken somewhere and all told you know you won't talk about this and they got to know each other that way the other possibility is that when these people approached me to sh to share their stories and wanted to get it off their chest maybe that actually wasn't what was going on maybe it was a deliberate release of material to see where it would all lead um you know in other words maybe there's like a silent war going on within the intelligence community where one faction wants the Roswell truth hidden and another group wants it out. And maybe the, the group that wanted it out kind of tested the waters by having a few of their people who they'd had on board put the story out there. Now, you know, the, the same thing happened um, but six years before, excuse me, eight years before Body Snatchers came out. In the same way that I was given this story, uh, Popular Mechanics published a story in 1997 openly saying they'd been given a story which basically revolved around the forthcoming release of documents that would tell the story of Roswell in relation to balloons, lifting bodies, and a Japanese equivalent of Operation Paperclip. They published that in 97. That sounds eerily like the same thing that happened to me 
in the early 2000s. And it happened to another researcher, which we can get to later, a well-respected Australian researcher, Keith Basterfield, who was also approached with a near-identical story when I was still actually writing the book, but this was a completely different source. So I do think there's a possibility that the story was deliberately put out, but it was deliberately put out to make it look like a bunch of old-timers just wanted to, you know, clear their consciences. In furtherance of what? Trying to get somebody somewhere wanted that story to come out for some reason the, the one that you've yeah. you've elucidated what what would be the reason to, to come clean or to muddy the waters more or what do you think well i mean that, that's the big question i mean if the story is not true and aliens really did crash at roswell then obviously it would have been some sort of disinformation program or counterintelligence operation to you know to 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 hide the truth of the ufo angle but my argument has always been, when that comes up, why on earth would somebody in 2001 need to create even a new disinformation program when the mogul balloon and the crash test dummy scenarios are still firmly in place? You know, the, yeah. the Air Force endorses that to this very day, mm-hmm. both scenarios. So why on earth would the intelligence community bring yet another theory, which is probably guaranteed to turn more heads you know you think they just want to keep lay low now that they put out their two theories and said you know say to people if you want the answers buy our report you know um so that's the problem with it being disinformation now the only other angle that to me sounds kind of plausible is that there really was some sort of group on the inside that maybe if the story's true they were outraged and they wanted to get the story out but Maybe if they were somehow implicated, but finally wanted to come clean, it was a, maybe it would be difficult for them to get the story out without then somebody finding out who they were, you know, the sort of the string pullers. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe that's why there was such a, like a skullduggery type approach of leaking stuff to, or information to popular mechanics and, you know, these four people speaking to me. Another one on the other side of the world in Australia talking to Keith Basterfield. Um, well, the, yeah, well you know, there was the Annie, Annie Jacobson angle, too, which we can talk about. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of an even more bizarre one. But yeah. all of this shows that somebody on the inside has been putting out multiple stories of concerning Roswell. And as I said, if it was a UFO event, and it really has to be kept under wraps, it doesn't make sense to put out extremely inflammatory um, cover stories beyond mogul balloons and beyond crash test dummies for fear or the, the possibility of having regular journalists look into this, which they probably would have looked into more like a human experiment than they would look into, you know, um, an alien story. So there's a major gamble there by adding another... Um, cover story, you know, yeah, if that's to the, the existing one. Yeah, if that's if that's the um, motivation. So, what do you think the motivation yeah. was? I mean, there, there's a lot of indications here that people are they're not going to be around much longer. They wanted to say what they know. It doesn't really support the Roswell alien thing, but it does support a story that could be p- potentially very uh, mm. bad. Look, make the United States look bad make the government look bad and make them look not much better than, you know, it, n- never mind the paperclip thing, which a lot of people are upset about, you know, to add that to you know, the Unit 732 stuff. Do you think it was a kind of a, 
a whistleblower or just something to come clean? Because there is part in the book where you say there's a, um, a a review process with the National Archives, and there were people in there, uh, according to a memo you uncovered, that kind of were interested in getting some of this stuff out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the interesting things is, and I talk about this in the new book, about how, you know, Philip Corso, Colonel Corso in 97, wrote with Bill Burns um, the day after Roswell. Now, some people just viewed that as, you know, just bullshit. They just said, this is nonsense. You know, this is just too good to be true. Yeah. And other people said, yes, it's the real thing. There wasn't much, you know, space between the two theories. What a lot of people don't know is that... Corso, during the war and afterwards, uh, was di- uh, big friends with a, na- a guy named Charles Willoughby. Charles Willoughby was a, a major figure in the Second World War and afterwards um, in ensuring that the Japanese Unit 731 files that were that were re- re- retrieved... When 731, Japan, sorry. Yeah, surrendered. Yeah, 731. Um, they were... Or he was... Willoughby was part of the program that brought um, the 731 files to the United States, and he was act- and Corso was actually briefed on parts of this program. So you know, an argument could be made that if the Unit 731 angle to Roswell is correct, that Corso knew about that. So you know, there's a motivation for him muddy in the waters. Um, you know, him and Willoughby were sort of like you know two crossed fingers. You know that they were that close as friends. So. Yeah, well, that and there's um, people uncovered. Various people uncovered that they they were involved with some like radically right wing groups too. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which also in, in, in explains why. Oh, who was the senator? The guy from uh, South Carolina wrote the original preface or introduction to, to the first printing of the Roswell book. He was um, a, Strom Thurmond. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he was a senator for like eight gazillion years. Yeah. So there was there was that it's kind of like that these guys had a you know had an idea of anything's fine as long as it helps the United States you know and any kind of uh moral questions be damned but the thing is that you know, think, what you've uncovered yeah. is that this might be coming home to roost and on top of this if this turns out to be something uh that can be uncovered and proven wouldn't that be a about a hundred times bigger story than Roswell. Wouldn't you be writing that story on the, uh, uh, at that level? I mean, I think you well, already yeah, have, I mean, but you know, it's kind of a well, Roswell. Yeah, I mean, book. yeah, uh, but I mean, to sort of go back to the point, you you know, the the, the main question, which we kind of got off the track when you, yeah. what was the motivation of these people? Right, right. I think it definitely came across that they wanted to clear their consciences. Now. The woman who I called the uh, the Black Widow. What happened was that back in 1998, I wrote a book called The FBI Files, and I talk about this in the new book as well. Um, I wrote a book called The FBI Files in 98. That um, that book had a chapter in it called The Oak Ridge Invasion. Now that that book also was published by Simon and Schuster. And as you know yourself, when you write about something in a book, people know about it. They write care of the publisher and, and talk, you know, send you a letter or whatever. Right. Well, that's what happened. This woman, the Black Widow, she read the book and wrote to me and said she could share some information about the Oak Ridge connection to UFOs. And I thought, you know, well, because the book was about UFO sightings, or that chapter was about UFO sightings at Oak Ridge, I assume that's what she wanted to talk about. Um, but she wouldn't put anything in paper. She wouldn't let me interview her over the phone. She wouldn't send anything by fax. And this was sort of very early, you know, internet era. 
um, which she wasn't even on. And and I explained, well, you're in America, I'm in the in the UK, etc., etc. It's not going to be feasible. And so it reached sort of a, a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Then in 2001, you know, I moved over to the US, and I actually met her in person in Los Angeles in the summer of 2001. And we sat down, and she told me, I, I was fully expecting to get the story of UFOs at Oak Ridge. But basically, she told me the story, well... The story does concern Oak Ridge, but the UFO angle isn't what you think it is. And then she sort of broke into this story about how she'd seen some of these strange bodies and mangled bodies and um, learned from other people sort of scuttlebutt and rumor and everything else. And actually, in one briefing, that, um, you know, these people were used in experiments out in the New Mexico desert. So, in other words, that's what really kicked it off, was her speaking to me after she read my book, which included a chapter on the place she worked. So it's sort of like, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of five steps from Kevin Bacon, that kind yeah, of yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and so from what happened after that was that then she was able to put me in touch with these other three. And they it was those four, collectively, which provided the information and the backup information was sort of historical stuff I used in the book for, on like the Japanese Fugo balloons, Unit 731, etc., etc. So that's how it happened. Now, whether that was all done just of their own making or if there was somebody pulling the strings behind them, I, I truthfully don't know. You know, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I can say for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. But if if they were... Working for somebody else, they did a good job of of not presenting that kind of approach, you know. Right. Um, and but you know the thing that kind of keeps me on this is the fact that you know in the twelve years since Body Snatchers came out and right up to the new book, you know I've continued to get new information here and there, which continues to support the, the theory and from different sources. So, uh, and I think the big problem is. You know, it's kind of like, for ufology, it's like the elephant in the room. Nobody wants to see that angle. Nobody wants to investigate it. Nobody wants to look at it. They all just want it buried because, like I said, because they realize what the stakes are, you know, if if Nick brings it down. So. Yeah. I think that we might have been uh, talking at uh, leaving people at a disadvantage where, where I'm saying this is very, uh, this would be very explosive. And, Maybe we should explain what the explosive nature of it is. Uh, what Unit Seven Three One was? What What's that uh, noise? What noise? You don't hear constant bleeping. Oh, it stopped now. <laughs> I love it. It's just like uh, you. You said you sent the uh, first manuscript to um, body of Body Snatchers in the Desert to Simon and Schuster and Pairview. I think it was Pairview Pocket or Simon and Schuster or both. And um, you said the manuscript well, disappeared off their off their table um, overnight. Yeah. Well, for people who don't know, with Unit 731, Unit 731 was this radical um, sort of scientific medical operation in Japan, um, which uh, sort of came to a crashing end when the Second World War ended. Mm-hmm. But basically, the Japanese were doing sort of terrible experiments on on human subjects. And, um, you know, it was very much or near identical to what the Nazis were doing, you know, sort of uh, high and low pressure operations and experiments, um, you know, just 
just terrible biological experiments, you know, injecting people with viruses. Yeah. Uh, but also, a lot of it was re- uh, based around aerospace medicine as well. Now, of course, at the end of the Second World War, both, you know, the Soviets and the West were looking to grab as much from the Germans and the Japanese as possible because they didn't want the other side to get it. And, uh, you know, it was almost like one of those Faustian pacts where, you know, you don't want this... You don't really want to work with these people, but you don't want to find out that next week they're working either for Moscow, you know. And it was kind of like one of these things, well, what do we do? You know, we don't want to work with them, but otherwise they're just, you know, the Russians are going to get them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so the, the theory or the story told to me was that these various people, the programs, um, et cetera, were brought over, the documentation, the technology, and it was tested in the New Mexico desert. And in some cases, um, the, the people who were used were like guinea pigs, human guinea pigs, taken from asylums, from hospitals, even prisoners. Um, now, as bizarre and as controversial as that might sound, if you look at the declassified files which have surfaced through the Freedom Information Act on the early atomic aircraft programs like the ANP and the NEPA programs that were you know, created back in the 40s, mm-hmm. the official declassified files through the Freedom of Information do talk about um, the idea of approaching prisons and giving prisoners um, a, a shortened sentence if they would be willing to take part in some of these experiments. That's act, that, they're not leaked papers or questionable. They're freedom of information documents. So, you know, that, that's what was going on. And so the whole issue is that this mass of human experimentation, highly controversial human experimentation in the New Mexico desert from roughly late 45 through mid 47, um, led to the legends of the crashed UFOs and the little dead aliens or the odd-looking people or whatever. Um, so that, that's basically it, you know. And and but you know, to get to your other points that you mentioned about, um, I mean, when you talk about, for example, Paraview Pocket publishing the book, mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of people who don't understand that you know the the publishing industry has changed. You know, they kind of still look back at the old days when a, a real book is like, a, oh, it's a hardback book or a paperback, you know. Yeah. They don't even view today Kindle as being a real book or Print on Demand as being a real book, you know. that's They're just kind of stuck in the mud of, of you know, technology not changing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, somebody actually made a, you know, a totally inaccurate claim when the book came out. They said, oh, well, you know, Body Snatchers isn't uh, valid because it's Print on Demand. It wasn't print-on-demand any more than your Project Beta was um, was, um, uh, was print-on-demand. Print, uh, excuse me. Yeah, well, yeah it wasn't print-on-demand. It didn't on exist demand. then. Uh, no. Well, you see, the thing is, what happened was that Paraview was a company that put out books, and, you know, they were at their own small little publishing company. You know, and um, if you got a book... that you wanted publishing, they would publish it on your behalf. Now, Simon and Shuster in the early 2000s were looking to break further into the paranormal world of writing, like UFOs, cryptozoology, etc. But they didn't know who to get on board. So they did a deal with Paraview where 
Simon and Schuster would publish the book, and Paraview, like Patrick Weege, mm-hmm. uh, would edit the books. So they created this sort of little company called Paraview Pocket. And Pocket is like the softback um, department of Simon and Schuster. Right. So what you had was the the editing done by people like Patrick, and the public by the publishing done by Simon and Schuster. So they can buy the two. So it was Paraview Pocket. Right. Um, now there was no print on demand. There was no vanity press aspect to it or anything like that. It was just it was published by Simon and Schuster. Um, but people tried to use leverage the idea that oh well it's Paraview and they're you know they're just a small time company which that was like just you know that was a total attack on Paraview and kind of like a cowardly you know just pathetic way of trying to say well if it's not published by a major publishing house etc etc and it's not in hardback it's it you know it's not worth reading, that kind of thing, which is ridiculous. And that was kind of like, that was probably like the lowest of the low. But the, the, just the other, one other thing you mentioned about uh, the manuscript. Yeah. What happened, um, you know, I wrote the Word documents, and bear in mind the time frame, this is 2004. Um, you know, I, I emailed the Word documents to, to, uh, to be edited. But back then, they still wanted a printed out one as well. Uh, thank goodness you don't have to do that today. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they wanted a paper copy, so I had to print out like a 400 double-spaced um, document and mail it off. Mm-hmm. It reached the offices. Um, Patrick and Josh Martino, who both worked on the book, you know, had a, started on it and started going through it and editing it and proofing it and whatever. Yeah. And one night, it literally it vanished from the offices of Simon and & Schuster, and it was not seen again, and I had to send another printed copy. Nobody could figure out where that had gone, but that was very shortly after um, it, um, I'd sent it into the offices and... Um, and my agent, Lisa Hagen, who I quote in the book, she told me she'd heard a few similar weird stories to that where um, manuscripts had gone missing and, um, and she found out in like one or two cases that um, a couple of people, not in Simon & Schuster, I should stress, but in another company, that people had actually been approached by people in the intelligence community to say, hey, you know, if there's anything that's kind of national security-based and you think we might want to see it, you know, let us know, and, you know, there'll be something in it for you, that kind of thing, Um, which is controversial. But, you know, Lisa's a very credible figure in the publishing world. You know, she's been in it for decades. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of weird stuff. And then the other thing, you know, there was this uh, committee in the same time frame um, looking to see what Unit 731 files were still um, around or where they were hidden or where they were kept in what archives and could it all get released. Right. You know, it's kind of like um, during the Clinton administration when there was this big um, investigation of the human radiation experiments back in the 40s, you know, and the Clinton administration set up this um, committee to try and find all the files and release them. Well, that's what went on in the 90s with... Um, with the whole issue with Unit 731 and Japanese balloons and all sorts of stuff are in the release files. Now, what's interesting is that the book itself was published on June the 21st, 2005, which happened to be just the very same day that this committee that was looking into all the Japanese files published one of its major reports. And I actually got a phone call immediately afterwards from 
a woman working on that program, and she said that she she basically and it sounds the way she described it, it sounds like that how it really was. She went on Google and searched on their committee to see what was being said because the report had just come out. You know yeah. so that made sense. It just just to search it out, and because my book contains so much about Unit Seven Three One. Although they looked for the work they were doing, it flagged my book as well, which which does make sense with it being released at the same time. Right. And and she asked a number of questions about the book and, you know, what the Unit 731 connection was. And I mean, she didn't come across like a woman in black or anything like right, that, right. you know. It, but, but it was clearly somebody on that, you know, in that arena was was interested in the book and the data that was contained in it. And, um, you know, and the fact that um, the manuscript went missing. And, and she actually, the one thing that was weird, and I put that out in the book as well, yeah. one thing that was genuinely weird, <laughs> she did say something along the lines of that one or two of her colleagues had actually read it. And I said, well, read what? She said, the book. And this was really right round about the point when the book was just about to be released, and it was highly unlikely that somebody had already got it, and Kindle wasn't around then. And I did kind of wonder if that was sort of an allusion um, to, um, to the manuscript. Know, the manuscript. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't prove that. And, I mean, maybe that's sort of going down a paranoid path. I don't know. But you can, you could make that case. You know, I'm not saying... It's a solid case, but it's something that was certainly, you know, in my mind when uh, when all that went down. So, um, but I think the big problem is that what the, the people on that committee found and what I found is that there genuinely is a massive lack of those original files that at some point, you know, probably who knows how many tens of thousands of pages of material were destroyed. And there are good ed indications that it isn't the case that they're just hiding it, that stuff just was destroyed on a massive scale, mm -hmm. you know, way back when. And we we may never really know if, you know, maybe even the Roswell files were destroyed, which wouldn't be good from our, any perspective, because that means we would mm -hmm. never really get the answer, you know. Um, but, it, I mean, it's difficult to say. I mean, it is kind of like, um, you know, sort of a hall of mirrors trying to figure out which alleyway to go down, you know, which one to avoid. So. Yeah. Well, what did you find out that kind of, because what I noticed throughout the book was basically, look, I put this book out in 2005. Um, I got these stories from these people. I got a few different um, documents to support it. To me, this is just kind of more in depth than saying, "Look, that you know, the, he's here's even more evidence." If you weren't convinced before, he, here's even more evidence. Um, and what was you know what was the nature of the the newer stuff? And are there are there more people that you talk to, or do you, you know more documents yeah. you were able to yeah. access, etc.? Yeah, I mean, one of the stories that I have in the book is um, an account that came from Keith Basterfield, and Keith. He's a well-respected Australian UFO researcher. He's been in the subject for a very, very long time and, um, you know, done a lot of good work. Now, the Body Snatchers came out in the summer of uh, 2005. Now, round about towards the very end of 2005, Keith contacted me and said, you know, I saw Body Snatchers, read it, and I've actually got a story almost identical but he was given this story long before 
um, body snatchers even came out. And Keith Source, who Keith knows the guy's real name, as do I, and um, the, the story that was given to Keith came from a guy living in Adelaide, Australia, and who Keith met with personally, and who told him a very similar story. Now, Keith spoke to this guy, and well, I should say, when he was speaking to him, he said, look, you know, this guy, Nick, in America, has written a book called Body Snatching in the Desert, which tells an, pretty much an identical story, you know, and, and he pointed out to um, this guy, Martin, um, Keith pointed out that, you know, he, his book hadn't actually come out, you know, when Martin told Keith this story. So, you know, it can't be sort of based around that. Yeah. But oh, you mean happened, your book hadn't was, come out when, when he heard the story? Yes, yeah. 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 So what happened was that Keith and Martin got together and Martin shared the story. And then Keith said, well, you know, can I tell Nick about it? And can you then speak to him? And he agreed. So I actually phoned this guy, Martin, up from the U.S., uh, probably about 9 o'clock at night, I think. You know, we had to figure out the time difference between the U.S. and Australia. Yeah, so I phoned 14 him up, hours or something. And he related this story to me. He said that his father, um, he was in his 60s then. This was sort of, so he'd be, um, you know, sort of pushing mid-70s now, I think uh, Martin would be. But his father worked for MI5, which is, you know, the British equivalent to the FBI. Right. And according to Martin, his father had been briefed on what had happened at Roswell. And it seemed there was some sort of collusion or connection between MI5 and somebody in U.S. intelligence, and there'd been a sharing of information on Roswell. And the story that was given to uh, Martin via his father... Uh, when his father was was ill and old, was that in the summer of '47, the military was test flying various devices, specifically sort of like uh, one of them was described as being like um, a H Horton Brothers type glider kind of craft. Yeah, flying which would wing. Be like a flying wing, which would be attached to this massive balloon array and which could essentially be detached and it would sort of, you know, soar through the sky and you know, almost be like a kamikaze-type plane. And there are other experiments or equally using massive balloon arrays um, to test the, like, the exposure to high altitudes um, on people. And reportedly, according to Martin Source, the one that led to the, the Roswell legend involved a number of handicapped people taken from a nearby um, installation, which I'll talk about, um, and... One of these, this experiment um, lifted this huge balloon array into the sky and with this sort of lifting body type thing below it. And there was some sort of mid-air disaster where the, the vehicle came away from the balloon array. And what happened was that the, because of the weight of the craft, it slammed down into the ground on the Foster Ranch where Matt Brazel found the, the wreckage. But because the balloon array was much lighter... It, that came down, sort of sailed down much slower, because being lighter, and landed um, on a different part of the ranch. And reportedly, there was some sort of explosion. So a lot of this uh, balloon wreckage was shattered all over the place. So in other words, you have two locations on the Foster Ranch. You have one where this all this balloon wreckage, aluminum-looking balloon wreckage is on the ground at one place because it all sort of showered down slowly and lightly. 
then you have the craft itself with the bodies on, well, the people on board, which came down pretty much vertically, you know, and just slammed into the ground uh, at a, a distance of about three or four miles away. Now, what's interesting is that most of the pro-UFO researchers agree now that there were two or three sites on the ranch. There was the the foil, you know, this massive field, massive field of debris and foil, mm-hmm. which, you know, you could make a case was balloon wreckage if it was a huge array. And then you had another place where there was some sort of craft. And then there was a third location where reportedly a solitary body was found. And that's what Keith, um, Keith Source said, that there were several different locations based around the fact that part of one of the objects was a heavy craft and the other one was a a balloon array, and that there was a survivor as well. And that's something you find in most of the books by people like Ken, uh, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt, that their sources said there was a survivor. And the the whole thing was hidden, um, you know, with the, the burgeoning sort of UFO mythology that was taking off, and reportedly they used that as kind of a cover story and put out one story that it was a weather balloon. No, sorry, you know, it was a flying saucer, it was a weather balloon. Really just to try and deflate the whole thing so to speak um and so that was the story that martin gave to me now on the issue of um a nearby installation where supposedly they got these people from this was supposedly a place called fort stanton now fort stanton is literally i won't say in spitting distance of the foster ranch but it, it pretty much is. Um, both the Foster Ranch and Fort Stanton are in Lincoln County, New Mexico. And what's intriguing is that during the Second World War, Fort Stanton was where um, numerous New Mexico ba- and Arizona-based Japanese people were held there as so-called enemy aliens. And in some respects, you know, it was done as much for their safety as it was for you know, as they perceived it for America's safety, you know, the, the idea that their houses might be torched or whatever by irate Americans, you know, because they've got Japanese people living in town or whatever. So they were actually taken to Fort Stanton. Fort Stanton, over the years, has also been the home, uh, like a, a care place for physically handicapped people and people with mental difficulties as well. Um and I talk about a number of people in the book who saw, you know, extremely severely handicapped people held at Fort Stanton, which, as I said, is within spitting distance almost of the Foster Ranch. Um, and this also takes us into the research of Kathy Caston, who died in 2012. Now, you won't know this bit because... You yeah, I didn't, that part I in the book didn't get to that part in the yeah. book, no. And also, I knew Kathy, actually. And I think she oh, okay, described cool. some of this stuff to me sometime in the 90s. Um, oh, well, that's interesting because I talk about that in the book. Now, what happened was that when Body Snatchers came out, Kathy contacted me. I hadn't had any contact with her before that. Very interesting because she had done an entire study of uh, Fort Stanton. What had happened, and I didn't find this out till later, but she had uncovered a number of sources who told her that in, in the, one, the way one of them literally worded it, that it all began and ended at Fort Stanton. Mm. Um, and that supposedly these were sort of military experiments and that some of the people involved in these experiments, because of the close proximity, were taken from Fort Stanton. Now, 
what happened taken was from that, Fort Stanton to where to 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 uh, White Sands or something like that? Yeah, yeah. The, well, there were references in her work to like um, Almogordo, uh, White Sands, even a connection with. Um, um, Randall Lovelace, you know, the guy who did all sort of a lot of work for NASA and high altitude experiments and all sorts of things that he was brought into it as well. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that me and um, Kathy sort of got a good report going over the years and she would she actually sent me a lot of her research, um, things that involved Lovelace and some of the Fort Stanton stuff. Yeah. Now, when she unfortunately died at 72 in 2012, not long before, she sent me a lot of her files and said, you know, you're free to do with this whatever you want. And with hindsight, I have no proof of this, but with hindsight, I do wonder if, you know, she knew she wasn't feeling too well or something and, you know, decided to hand it over. Yeah. But what happened after that was that um, her family kindly gave me all her files. You know, there was like huge boxes of thousands of pages turned up on the doorstep one day. Oh. Um they gave me literally everything because they knew me. You know, we're good friends, and we covered the same sort of work. Huh. And I got one thing research. from her, so that that's amazing. I got something called that. I think yeah. it's called the Hadron supposition when she was actually dealing with that's Fort right. Stanton. Yeah, that's right, the Hadron's uh, supposition. Yeah. And what happened was that going through her files, it showed that as far back as the early 1990s, she had got a number of sources she'd spoken to, who said that. The, the Roswell events, uh, the balloons were sort of based on these massive Japanese arrays that were, were planned, and the people were, these handicapped people, taken from various places in New Mexico, like asylums, hospitals, prisons, but on one occasion uh, from Fort Stanton. And then from there, the, the, the files that she got talk about how the one survivor of the crash um, was taken to Fort Stanton because it was literally, you know, no distance away from the ranch and was treated there. One of the people brought in was Lovelace, supposedly, to examine the the guy who was critically in and who apparently died sort of four or five days later. And what's sort of the most sensational aspect of the story is that according to um, Kathy's work, that this one survivor who was taken to... Uh, Fort Stanton, whereas the others were dead, and so their bodies were taken to Roswell, and then you've got the legends about the bodies being preserved, you know, at the Roswell Base Hospital, that kind of thing. But reportedly the dead ones were taken to Roswell for preservation. The one who survived the crash was taken to Fort Stanton because it had medical facilities as well. Now, the most inflammatory but sensational aspect is that one of Kathy's sources told her that when he died... They actually buried him on the in the Fort Stanton Cemetery. <laughs> now, that that cemetery is not um, a small cemetery. I mean, it was a tuberculosis hospital at one point, and the the cemetery holds in excess of a thousand bodies. Yeah. Um, but one of the interesting things, and this is actually true, is that the graves do show there was an increase in deaths in '47. So, you know, that's kind of intriguing. So, but mm. what I found most intriguing was that Kathy, who really had done most of her, we her work quietly and with without talking about it until the late 90s, publicly at least, 
She had all the key ingredients, the Fort Stanton angle, the handicapped people, the Japanese balloons, people taken from asylums, and classified experimental aircraft flights in New Mexico in the summer of 47. And so, in other words, she was someone who had also got very similar information. What's intriguing, but also a little bit frustrating, is that... There's one person who she mentions, in not in the files that I got after she died, but that she sent me earlier, uh, about a woman she met named Danny, uh, D-A-N-I-I, who um, claimed knowledge of the, the Lovelace story and who provided extra information. Um, but, you know, you, you put these together, and, you know, like with the Keith Basterfield story, and as I said, you know, although he's just listed in Mar as Martin in the book, the main source of this story, um, both Keith and I, you know, have his full background information and now and everything else. And so, you know, you have this guy on the other side of the world telling a story eerily similar to the one that I got back in 2001 and 2003. But this guy's in Australia getting his story from his father back in 1959 when he was reportedly given the story. Um, but then, you know, there are a number of other threads, like, for example, the late Carl Flock. Now, Carl became a champion of the mogul balloon scenario. Right. But back in 92 and 93, he was actively talking about how he suspected there was at least a possibility that Roswell was like akin to the, the human radiation experiments. In other words, you know, controversial projects using human test subjects. And then he suddenly swung away from that. But he, wa he was supporting that for a while. Then you add that to popular mechanics and how they were given the story, um, you know, in 1997. And then you find the Unit 731 connections to Corso. Um, and then if you go back further... Um, I'm sure you saw the bit where I talked about how I was hired in 2000 and early 2002 oh, yeah, to go Bob. through all of yeah Bob, Bob to go through all of Tim Cooper's files yeah Bob um, Wood. yeah Cooper um, had found or had spoken to a nurse in Colorado who had told him a story about how um, a number of strange bodies were brought into um, the Los Alamos facility from 45 to 47 and these were bodies these weren't living and they weren't nearly dead in some cases they were refrigerated bodies if they've been preserved and some of them were looked you know they had clearly genetic abnormalities and deformities and she said they were used in uh, various uh, human experimentation from 45 to 47 um, now in the files that I was sort of collating for Bob, which was thousands and thousands of pages strewn across a hotel room <laughs> floor, yeah. um, was a name of Marion Earhart, and, um, and, I, and I tracked her down, you know, I phoned her up, and I explained why I was calling, and she was like an elderly nurse, she was an elderly nurse, and I found her on the internet as well, which gave her uh, history as a nurse for you know for the uh, like the state licensing for nurses that kind of thing it was on that particular website right. and uh, and I said look you know I've been uh, I know this guy Tim Cooper and um, your name's listed etc etc and could you share a little bit of information about what well about um, experiments undertaken in the 40s at, at Los Alamos do you know what I'm talking about yes could you expand on it? I'd rather not. <laughs> um, and it was kind of like that. And I said, well, 
are you aware of what I'm talking about? And I said, can you at least confirm that? And she, and she basically said something along the lines of, you mean the, the strange bodies? I said, yes. And she said, well, if you know the story from, as I've already told it, that is the story. And there's, I, there's nothing I can add to it. And, but she didn't say, like, there's nothing I can add to it. She wanted to get rid of me. She legitimately, I think, didn't know anymore. Um, but she was, like, very... But uh, said that she had seen that. She said she had seen these bodies coming in. Yeah, Yeah, as as a point of uh, reference to... uh, Well, well, no, what happened was that she knew the story, but it got kind of convoluted because when I checked her age, she would have been a little bit too young. Yeah, she said she was going to be 16 or something. Yeah, that's right. And the more I dug into it, it was clear that she was actually protecting another nurse. It got really convoluted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, and, um, but um, Marion Earhart, she died a couple of years ago, and she's, she's buried in, um, in Colorado, one particular cemetery. Um, but she basically said, well, yeah, the story that I told him is, is the story. And, but then the way she worded it, she never said, I saw them. She said, this is a story I told him. And I said, well... Where did you, you know, what did they look like when you saw them? And then that's when it came out. She was like, well, you know, it, it was it was her case of her then saying, well, I did, you know, the story doesn't actually come from me. The story is passed on to me. She almost said that kind of grudgingly, you know, in a way where she was implying it without actually sort of openly saying it. Right. Um, so she was, uh, so, she was, uh, was she covering for that person or was she in? Oh, I'm sure she was yeah. because what I found was that her, her work as a nurse in Colorado alone went back to 72. So I kind of speculate that that would have, you know, 72, there were plenty of people at Roswell or Los Alamos who were still alive in 72. Yeah. So because she, I was able to fully verify she was a nurse, I think that she probably did meet the real nurse and got the story from her. And and that's how the story got to Cooper. But when I called her up, it kind of freaked her out that, well, hang on a minute, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of you know, the second mouth in all this. I'm not the source, and is this guy phoning me up, asking me all about it, you know? And I think that kind of put her on a, you know, a bit of an antsy situation. Um, but, it, but, it, but it was kind of like a really odd, convoluted story of going from person to person to person to try and get, you know, to the, the core of, of who it was that really was at Los Alamos. But, I mean, again, this... You know, what's interesting about the Cooper files was that, you know, he had a number of entries in there that talked about bizarre biological experiments in the desert. And there was almost like a, as I also talk about in the book, like a two-tiered aspect to this. There was the era when Cooper was first getting into it and speaking to these interesting people who were talking about human experiments. And then you've got, post that, you've got when he was suddenly flooded with all the MJ-12 documents. Yeah, well, that's what people... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, there was like, there's like a clear definitive difference between the, the pre-era and the post-era. And I, that was interesting, you know, as if... I know a lot of people say that Cooper faked the documents himself, but on the other hand, if he was getting close to something domestic and terrestrial, then maybe that's what prompted this sudden flooding of all these files on dead aliens and alien autopsies and MJ-12, you know, yeah. and, uh, and he and became SM-101 like and all that. Guy. 
Yeah, SOM. Yeah, and he maybe became the fall guy, you know. Yeah, just basically to to take his attention away from something that people didn't want, you know, uh, might as well keep yeah. the the alien ruse up in some way. And also, it, it yeah. dangles candy in front of him, so he stops worrying about the yeah. stuff that's worrying somebody. I guess that yeah. that's a scenario you present in the book, and I wanted I wanted to make that clear. So that's good. There's like some nails in the coffin here. I wanted to talk about basically about the uh, artifacts and how people got these stories about these artifacts if they're accurate or not and how how do you account for them and i guess the first thing i'd ask about would be the the little sticks with the you know with the strange symbols on them what what part would that be in a um in a flying wing or a lifting body or or a a balloon array or whatever is there some sort of historical record that accounts for that aspect of the story which is you know I guess at least Marcel and Marcel Jr. saw. I don't know if anybody else talked about it. I think there were a few other too, few others too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that is an interesting part of the story. Now, the only the only angle that that kind of ties in where you're talking about with sort of classified balloons is that the Air Force, when they came out with their Mogul theory in 1994. They did say that the kind of tape that was used on portions of that balloon did have sort of like hieroglyphic-type patterns on them, and they were supposedly created by a particular uh, company. But we haven't seen examples of those. But it is interesting that the Air Force did I have examples of them. Oh, okay. They were, supposedly they said they were scotch tape, that were put mm-hmm. out for holidays that had, you know, That's right. Easter yeah. like and rabbits and, yeah. and, and holly and, and Santa Claus faces. I've got some of this stuff because I was mm-hmm. trying to figure out if that's what – I wanted to show it to Jesse Marcel Jr. and say, is this what you'd seen? Uh-huh. Because he was going to say no, I'm sh- I'm certain, because even at that time, people would know what rabbits and and <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and holly berries and things like that looked like on, on tape. It wouldn't have looked like hieroglyphs. Anyway, go ahead. Well, I mean, one of the other – um, you know, interesting angles. I didn't include this in the book because it was ju- it was sort of kind of taking things away a little bit. But this was actually just said to me kind of like a, a little aside years ago by one of the other guys I interviewed, Al Barker. And he said to me that he couldn't prove it, but one of the things he wondered, it was just his theory, mm-hmm. was that, you know, if you look at... If these were Japanese balloons that were utilized in these experiments, like sort of post-Fugo balloons of a massive scale, if you look at, you know, when we were sort of fighting, you know, the Japanese or the Germans or whatever, you know, we would put little messages on the bombs when they dropped from the planes, you know, sort of like, take that, Adolf, you know what I mean, with white chalk, that kind of thing. Yes. And he wondered if some of the guys working on these programs, the Japanese people who brought over wrote little weather sarcastic messages or hello mom you know that kind of, on some of these balloons that they kind of did the same thing that we did um you know just leaving their mark just to say something you know what i mean and, and they yeah. wrote it how, in japanese how, yeah. or whatever how would those show up in roswell though were they using japanese fugo balloons i thought they used their own no, not Fugo, but well, what what they the, what the it's kind of a convoluted scenario. That the theory or the story is that when the war ended, yeah, I mean nobody disputes. You know, there were these Fugo balloon yeah. flights. You know, there, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of them, and there was one case where you know people were killed um, getting too close to one of these. And for people who don't know, the Fugo balloons were these 
sort of large balloons that were calibrated to cross the Pacific, and they were calibrated so they would descend and descend and randomly crash land in the United States, and hopefully, from the Japanese perspective, the bombs would explode and start fires. And, and you know, they're, they're, you start fires or kill people. Yeah. Now, what? And this is this part we can prove. At the, towards the end of the Second World War, the Japanese loudly. Um, basically came out and said that, you know, well, we, we've got even more powerful balloons, manned balloons that can be used to sort of, you know, reach the United States. Kind of almost like what's going on with North Korea now, you know, saying, you know, we're going to build a nuke and we can reach America, etc. It was kind of like that almost. Right. Um, and what happened was that when, you know, the, the atomic bombs were dropped on uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, what happened was, you know, the war came to a shuddering quick end. And from there... The story that I got was that the plans for these radically massive new balloons that would come over and be manned, all those records and, and documents and everything else and plans were brought over, as were the scientists that were working on the balloon programs. They reportedly came over in the same way that the German scientists came over, and the Japanese ones were enlisted to work on the construction and development of these balloons in the United States. Okay. But it wasn't like, you know, they were hauling across gigantic balloons on a ship. They, they worked on ones that were constructed in the United States. So oh, I see what you're saying, not, then. You know, yeah. So now whether or not... I mean, gr granted, this is a stretch, but if they're working on those things, who knows what they scribbled out of sarcasm or because they're essentially, you know, forced to work for the U.S., who knows what they could okay. have written on okay. some of I those balloons. Yeah, I was starting with an easy one then. And the other one is the memory metal uh, thing mm -hmm. and... How does that square? Because you bring up in the in the book that some of the balloons were made out of uh, aluminum coated, um, uh, some sort of plastic. I think Valet referred to it uh, long ago as aluminized saran, uh, as in yeah, saran wrap. Yeah. Um, one, I don't know how that would, you know, it come uh, unless everybody is inaccurate about it. How it would reform into its original shape with no. Um, evidence of being folded and two that it wouldn't burn or c couldn't be torn which seems kind of mm -hmm. anything that it's, it's, uh, a balloon is made out of should certainly be able to at least be melted a little bit or or stretched or something that that's another little sticking point that i guess people would bring up well here. it is yeah i mean there's no doubt about that i mean there are certain aspects of the story which you know are admittedly um you know, you know, unusual, and you know, I've never sort of, you know, shied away from that aspect. I mean, certainly the the memory metal, even arguably more than the bodies, you know, is um, is something that a lot of people still ponder on, regardless of, you know, which kind of side of the story you're on, so to speak. Right. But I mean, the the Air Force again, you know, sort of um, came up with a with a scenario that's to explain it, and I mean, I can read it to you. I've actually found the page in, in the book where I quote the Air Force. Um, they, they state, as early as May 48, polythene balloons coated or laminated with aluminum were flown from Holloman Air Force Base and the surrounding area. Mm -hmm. um, they continue, various accounts of the Roswell incident often describe thin metal-like materials that when wadded into a ball return to their original shape. These accounts are consistent with the properties of polythene balloons laminated with aluminum. Now, you know, to what extent that's literally the case, you know, 
when you talk about literally me literal memory metal, it's hard to say. But I mean, whether people accept that as the definitive answer or it's a potential, you know, um, tenuous answer to, to try and explain the memory, me memory metal is very much down to personal opinion. But there is, you know, there is an answer for it, whether you, ex you accept it or not, you know. You can sit here and um, nitpick a lot of these things, but you know, it, in the in the large picture, it's is the concatenation of evidence that Nick has brought up consistent with what people reported. And as far as I can tell, looking at the the book, I think it's fairly consistent. I mean, you finally get to the the uh, question of um, do the established facts fit the scenario that the, mm -hmm. that, that Nick is uh, coming up with, and which is more likely? that there is uh, some evidence that uh, deformed humans were used in high-altitude experiments, which were very, they were very interested in at the end of the war, or that aliens crashed here. And it seems far more likely to me, uh, at this point, Nick's explanation seems to make a, a bit more sense. But the first report you ever heard, I guess in Bill Moore's book at first, was that you know people like... Uh, uh, Marcel, a few other people he talked to said they've they weren't anything from here. They definitely weren't from this this planet. Is that because the writers put those words in those people's mouths, or did those people actually say that and believe it because they didn't you know they couldn't think of any well, other explanation? Well, I mean, I mean, all the people I spoke to and who uh, Keith Basterfield spoke to. You know, they said that these people had, you know, some of that specific deformities. You know, there were, um, you know, some of them had, one was born reportedly without eyes. Um, I talk about that in the book um, from Keith's source, that one of these people they used was sort of born without any eyes, which is, a, there is a legitimate medical condition, which I talk about in the book. Um, at least one had a pro uh, condition called progeria, which is like a, an extremely rare um um, genetic issue which which prompts sort of um, rapid aging and the people generally have an oversized head and no hair. I actually found files from 47 which I talk about in the book from Oak Ridge where um, experiments were done on, on somebody with progeria at Oak Ridge in the summer of 1947. You know, that, that's a fact. That's a Freedom of Information document. So in other words, we're not talking about someone who you know, has a regular appearance, but they may have sort of psychological issues. We talk about people who, whose genetic makeup is slightly different to the extent where they look radically different. Now, I guess if you were to see one of these bodies with an oversized head or, you know, deformed face, no eyes, in some sort of silver suit or something like that, you know, lift, lifted up into this... Um, balloon-type structure for the, you know, the um, high-altitude exposure experiments, it comes down, the body's partly pummeled when it hits the ground or when the craft hits the ground. You know, the body's out in the July sun for 24 hours before the military actually find it. Um, and then you can perhaps understand how and why, seen from a distance of perhaps 15, 20 feet, if the military are already there before the rancher gets there or whatever, um, you could understand why, at that quick glance, um, you could be talking about something alien. Now, the other thing I talk about in the book, you know, is round about that time, bear in mind this is the immediate post-war era, 
everybody who was talking about the enemy would talk about aliens or enemy aliens. You know, that was the, the phrase used back then. Now, if, you know, some of these experiments in 47 in New Mexico did involve Japanese pilots or scientists or guinea pigs or whatever, and if, you know, members of the public as seems to be the case, got there before the military did, like Bra the uh, rancher Brazel and Dee Proctor, who was a young boy at the time. Yeah. They may well have started talking about enemy aliens, and it's not a, a big leap before al enemy aliens becomes aliens, you know. And somebody said, you know, back in 47, we found enemy aliens out in the desert. You know, and um, we don't know what they are, where they're from, that kind of. Th I mean, that's what the, you know the 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 rancher might say because he wouldn't know anything about the program. But I can easily see how that would then, over the years, somebody would say, "Well, yeah, Matt Brazel told me he found aliens." You know, well, he may have said that, but he may actually have said enemy aliens. But the the, the word aliens is so emotive that may have been the one that was remembered. So. Yeah, perhaps. We did. Well, I mean, that, that, admittedly, that's you know, that's a guess. That's just a theory. Yeah, it's I a mean. guess. But the other thing is, these people started talking about this in the late seventies. In the late seventies, the culture had changed to the point. You know, two thousand. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Close Encounters had come out. Uh, there was there was sort of a, a cottage industry in strange stories like this, and a, a renaissance of UFO stuff, especially after uh, Close Encounters, and maybe that had you know filtered into the uh, uh, culture enough that where somebody said, "I don't I don't know what that was, but it wasn't anything from this world," because now you had a a way to hook into that by the depiction, you know, the, the, one of the first depictions before Strieber's alien of a gray basically was in um, uh, Close Encounters. No, you're, you're right. And I think, you know, um, things like that can always have some degree of bearing on it. But I mean, when, when it comes to the bodies, you know, I, although I do go down the path and, you know, I, I, I do believe that it probably, if it's ever proved, I think it will be shown to be a military experiment. But, Whatever the truth is, I'm convinced now that unusual bodies were found and that, in, that at least some of the wreckage superficially does sound like a massive amount of balloon wreckage, which would support what all my sources said and what Keith Basterfield said and what Kathy Caston's sources said, that these weren't like test flights of UFOs, you know, flying saucers. They were test flights of sort of lifting bodies with gigantic balloons involved. And that, for me, you know, if you've got unusual-looking people, no disrespect, but unusual-looking people and massive balloon arrays, you've got what are potentially the two prime aspects of Roswell, this strange balloon-like wreckage and unusual bodies, you know. So, um, and I think the one thing people often forget is that if all that foil was was from a UFO, you know, um, it, it doesn't sound like what you would expect. To, and granted, you have to be talking about alien spacecraft, we yeah, don't well, know. What but do you, you, you yeah, find? It doesn't sound like something that crashed, all that wreckage. It sounds like something that just floated down, you know, like, you know, just raining balloon wreckage down or balloon debris. Um, because... You know, we know that on the main site where all the strange foil was found, there was no gigantic hole, you know, there was no crater. Now, if that 
if it was like some sort of gleaming saucer that came down that was heavy and whatever, I don't see the wreckage would have been shattered across 600 feet. Just little pieces of foil-like material. To me, that does sound more like some sort of, you know, balloon-type disaster with a balloon, you know, exploding or whatever, because reportedly there were retro rockets attached to this whole thing, and the balloon supposedly caught fire, and um, and what, which basically, you know, um, destroyed it. So. Yeah, or the balloons. Uh, yeah, but like, yeah, it was... We, well, that's why I said an array, that they weren't talking about just one huge balloon. It was sort of like a yeah. an array or, you know, or one one pe- person described at least one of the flights as involving something almost like a, a Zeppelin-type balloon and actually wondered if, um, and again, I didn't put this in the book, but they actually wondered if some of these large um, sort of Zeppelin-like type crafts that were being flown were responsible for some of the early reports of cigar-shaped UFOs that, you know, that they may have seen classified experiments, you know, involving something else, but that was balloon-based and that, you know, was uh, was perceived to be a cigar-shaped UFO rather than a Zeppelin-type balloon. Possibly, yes. You know, when you talk about the flying wing and it being basically um, taken up to the stratosphere in these balloon arrays, and then I guess they, like, pull a cord or something and the thing drops, and then they they see how it can, um, you know, it it glides to the ground. Now, one thing about the Horton flying wings, which is why they were never developed, really, because the Air Force had flying wings, but they were so ridiculously unstable and took so much concentration because there was no fly-by-wire then. So the pilot had to be really good to keep the thing stable. So if this thing drops and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go into a proper glide or even if it doesn't get into a proper glide and something happens, the thing will start tumbling. It'll go into, I can't remember what it's called, but basically goes into an uncontrollable tumble, you know, um, uh, and not end over end, but um, along the, the long axis of the wing. Not along the cord, but along the whatever, horizontally along the wing. Um, that's what happened to a lot of the flying wings and why the Air Force abandoned them in the, in the 1950s eventually. In fact, Edwards Air Force Base is named after the Colonel, a Colonel Edwards who was on one of those flying wings when it crashed. So it's, well, it would seem yeah. like that thing would just have gone into a tumble and then just kind of um, smashed mm-hmm. into the ground. And the other thing is people said that uh, it didn't look uh, – some of the witnesses said that from what they could tell, it didn't look like it was a, a round disc thing, but more like, like, like we were discussing, a lifting body, something that was kind of yeah. wing, wing-shaped. So. Yeah, that's what a lot of even the pro-UFO people say for Roswell. But uh, but no, you're right. I mean, that issue of, you know, these things being notoriously unstable, at least when they were using, like, the lifting bodies, um, because, the again, all the people I interviewed said these experiments kind of went on from 45 to 47 or a little bit after, but then they just scrapped it all because everything just, nothing really worked properly, you know, that they had a lot of accidents and... They found that, you know, there are better ways when rocketry developed, or there are better ways to understand, um, like, high-altitude exposure and so on. And so they just scrapped these programs, which really were were fairly dicey to start with. Um, And that might explain, you know, if they were running them from sort of 45 to 49, as some of the people said, that might explain, you know, this big thing that, a lot of the UFO people get excited about in Roswell, that when 
the Air Force was doing its study and the General Accounting Office in 94 was looking into Roswell, they found that all the outgoing records from Roswell from 47 were missing. And, right. you know, people in the Roswell field make a big thing about that. What a lot of them won't tell you is that the files, yes, the outgoing files from 47 are missing, but it's actually the files from 45 to 50 that are missing. Now, saying that the files from 47 actually sounds really eye-opening, kind of like the wow factor, yeah. until you realize it's 45 to 50. Now, if there were ongoing experiments in New Mexico, and if the Roswell base was somehow implicated in not just the 47 one, but others, before and after, that might explain why somebody, at some point we don't know, pulled all the files from 45 to 50, to grab everything. You know, if this was an event that occurred out of the blue, a spacecraft from another planet comes down in the summer of 47, why pull the files from 45 and 46? Unless this is some sort of possibly an ongoing project you don't want anyone to know about. So you just grab the lot, you know. And as you say, that nobody knows where those where those records are. The uh, accounting office under... Um what was it, Senator Schiff in the late 90s, was yeah. it? Yeah, they, they said well, they couldn't find any. Actually. Oh, okay, because then they, they said that um, the Air Force told them, sorry, those things are, they're gone, they're, they've been destroyed, or we don't know where they are. Well, no, that was actually what it was. To this day, those files cannot be found, and we don't know if they were, you know, if they were destroyed or removed uh, one day before the GAO you know, went into that particular building to check yeah. or to find out what was going on. Or was it in 1948 or 55 or... Uh, I mean, one of the kind of depressing things that the a lot of the people I interviewed told me was that as far as they knew, the original files on what happened were destroyed. And they said the reason being that because nothing really was achieved and because these were sort of semi-illegal, highly controversial programs, anybody who was involved just wanted all these papers just sent to the furnace. So there'd be nothing to link anybody to it, which makes sense because you could make a good argument that the only reason for keeping the Roswell files would be if it was an alien crash. You know, you would preserve the bodies. There'd be massive amount of autopsy reports and study of the metal and the craft, you know, this material would be kept forever. But you would not, you know, with a, if there were bodies of um, handicapped people, Japanese people, apart from confirming that they didn't do well in these experiments, you're not going to learn a great deal. So, in other words, why keep it? You know, it'd be, it would be ridiculous to suggest that um, somewhere, you know, the, the rotting, preserved bodies of a few Japanese people, they just wouldn't be kept today. So there is that kind of depressing angle that everything may actually be gone. But on the other hand, you've got people like Keith Basterfield's source who said his father didn't get his information from original files. It was through uh, communication with the Americans. And that's the same with the guys I interviewed who said they saw the files in the 50s and 60s. Even if the, far, the original files were gone, what they read was definitely not the original reports. These are files put together 10 years later in one case and sort of 15, 16, 17 years later in, with the other guys. So there is a chance that something still exists. Um, and if it was alien, it would definitely still exist. But, um, you know, so it's, 
it's kind of difficult to know if, if there's even any documentation actually still surviving from that era, which if there wasn't, we stand no chance. You know, it just becomes somebody's word against somebody else's words. Yeah, and and then we'll never know definitively. We just have yeah. things like your book where you like, let's get yeah. together a bunch of evidence and see how well it holds up. That's another thing that uh, I have a problem with, with well, not, not just ufology, but in general with a lot of people, they want definitive answers. You can't have definitive answers on just about anything. You're always dealing with probabilities and a preponderance of evidence and, you know, the legal term, uh, uh, reasonable doubt. So, you know, and everybody's is different. And your beliefs and your, your wishes and what you're into and your friends and all that, your upbringing all enters into what you accept as evidence. Um, so as far as the UFO groups, groups are concerned, I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind. Um, but for people that are kind of thoughtful about it, I think that, uh, this new book in, in, in addition to body snatchers in the desert is probably gets to the point where people don't really think about it anymore because it's, it's been kind of solved at least, um, as far as I'm concerned. And I guess a lot of, uh, a few people that are interested in the subject matter and certainly, you know, the, the skeptical community will probably love your book. Have you had any, uh, um, like hardcore, I guess you'd call them, I call them fundamentalist skeptics, just people that are extremely against the UFO thing and, you know, and, and don't really, they're not really nuanced in their thinking. You know what I'm talking about? Have, well, you know, have, what have they said about your book? It's interesting that certainly when Body Snatchers came out, and I'm probably expecting something similar now, is that I found a lot of them were in like a quandary, in the sense that <laughs> I'd written a book which which negated the alien angle, but none of them were comfortable about endorsing the idea that it was terrible experiments. <laughs> so they, were ha they were fine with mogul balloons and crash test dummies because there's nothing controversial about mogul balloons and crash test dummies. Um, and I know for sure a lot of them were interested to see the, the response of the UFO community to body snatchers. And I think, well, I know with some of them, you know, they reacted with kind of with glee that the UFO, the Roswell believers were, you know, in a state of anger and fraud states or whatever yeah. but very few if any were willing to sort of give the thumbs up to the you know the experiment angle because i guess they said they felt it made you know the military back then look look bad you know so they, they weren't able to support it or outright deny it because because it was such an awkward scenario it seems so sure ridiculous to me that they, they, that <laughs> well, they would be uncomfortable with something like that. I think a lot of them are quite they're humanists and they don't like secrecy. Well, and they and you think they jump on this, but the, the, the reaction well, that, was kind of not, muted. Yeah. yeah, it was. And, um, you know, the people who sort of shouted the loudest were the ones who had sort of really championed Roswell as an ET event. But, I mean... The way I look at it is that, you know, if I go in investigating a case, Roswell or anything, and I do an investigation, I've gone as far as I can, so I put it out there, I don't worry or get concerned about what the community is going to think. I put it out for them to see, and if they, don't, if they like it, fine, and if they don't, 
Well, that's just too bad, you know. Um, oh no, I know you don't write these things to be popular. You write them because you want the you want the truth and fairness yeah. of things. I mean, that's a, that's that's yeah. uh, we both come out of that weirdo punk tradition where you know if it screws up the status quo and pisses people off, well, fine, that's so much the better, even. But as long as it's moving towards truth, fairness, and you know, and and clarity. Yeah, I mean, for, from my perspective, you know, I do. I want the truth to come out, whatever it is. Um, and I think the problem with ufology is that ufology is essential, whether people realize this or not, but it's very much belief-driven, you know. Um, and, I mean, it's not like you've got to believe something that happened at Roswell or that something odd happened at Roswell. It clearly something did happen and something odd happened. Yeah. Um, but the belief system overwhelms, you know, what we know as a fact. Um and and I think that's the problem, as I said at the beginning, and, and combined with what I said at the beginning about how you have this issue of it being elevated to the case, you know. Yeah. Um, where it's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket with the Patterson Bigfoot film, you know, all the people <laughs> who've believed that for years, and then if it was proved it really was a guy in a suit... Well, it wouldn't matter if it was just an obscure story and it was left as an interesting little story. Right, right. But championing it as the you know the the best bit of footage of Bigfoot, you're just asking for trouble, you know, and you're asking for trouble with Roswell by by suggesting this is the case that's going to make it. Well, no, it's not. You know, if if Roswell didn't involve aliens, and I find more and more information. I'll do my absolute best to bring that fucker down to the ground forever. Yeah. Not because of uh, not because of being, you know, sort of uh, wanting to spoil people's fun or no, no, you know, no, for no, no, malicious reasons. Because we need the answer, whatever it is, and then just nail it down. And when we've got it, if it was a UFO, that's great. We can all congratulate each other. If it wasn't, <laughs> if it was something worse you know, like a dubious experiment, then we need to then look at ufology and say, well, what's left? If the best crashed UFO case is gone, does that mean there are no bodies in cryogenic storage? Does it mean there have been no crashed UFOs? Does it mean there's no back engineering? In other words, the, the, the sort of angle of a crashed UFO at Roswell actually spirals out into all these other pop culture aspects of ufology, the dead aliens in bunkers, you know, Corso's story about uh, reverse engineering and transistors and Mm -hmm. all this business, all of that collapses if Roswell collapses. That's why, you know, we need... And we we may be left with... If Roswell collapses as a UFO event, we may be left with something more akin to just John Keel's kind of ufology, something that's more supernatural than it is nuts and bolts, you know. Which is not a bad thing. So. <laughs> no, not a bad thing. And in fact, it's. It, I mean, if that's the, the thing I mean, that knocks the, everything down to, to build it back up, then so much, you know, so be it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, on about Keel, I mean, there's an entire chapter in the book on Keel about how yes. he had investigated a number of cases where, pre Roswell, he'd uncovered a number of stories where supposedly some of these balloons that the Japanese were bragging that they were going to fly to the U.S. just before. Hiroshima and um, and Nagasaki were destroyed. He uncovered a number of stories suggesting that actually a couple of these flights were made, and the balloons came down in California, uh, in the California desert, and 
the U.S. military was out there monitoring them, you know, waiting for them to come down and got out there and either captured them or killed them, we don't know. But Keel talked about how one of the witnesses said he heard shots. And Keel believed that this was sort of the beginning of these legends of, you know, strange, in quotes, oriental people, you know, um, found in the desert with this strange wreckage, which he believed were these sort of last-ditch attempts in the final stages of the war to reach the U.S. and um, at least from their perspective, you know, do a little bit of damage. And uh, But Keel uncovered a number of stories like that, and he, he came to believe that, you know, some of these crash stories from, you know, the southwest, the desert, and so on, were these sort of early Japanese balloon flights. And, you know, the crew, if they died on board, and, you know, um, when the craft came down, they may be sort of slightly decaying and whatever, you know, and um, the funny that's how thing, the legends begin. Yeah, that, the yeah. funny thing is he oh. didn't apply it to the Roswell incident. He said that was Fugo's. Which is very strange. Well, as what well, was the body? Th- was the a- angle of having bo- finding bodies was that current yet? Because that didn't ha- the, the first Roswell book. I don't think it was in there. That that happened in uh, uh, during the research for uh, Randall and Schmidt's book, I believe. Yeah. Well, yeah. What what Keel basically said was that initially, when he got involved in writing about Roswell, he thought it was a Fugo balloon. He wrote this up in Fate. Now, what happened? He said that after his article appeared in, or his two articles on the Fugo balloon theory appeared in Fate, he was contacted by various people who said, well, we don't know anything about these Fugo balloons, but, you know, my Uncle Joe or whatever told me about how back in 45, this huge balloon came down in the California desert and there were Japanese people on board. So then Keel went back and wrote another article for Fate in 93. His original one was in 90. Went right. back in 93 and expanded, saying, well, it may not have been a Fugo balloon, but it was still a Japanese, it could have been a Japanese balloon, much bigger, with a gondola, and that perhaps one or two of these flights made it to the U.S., and for morale reasons, you know, the government wouldn't want anyone to know, um, you know, that a Japanese contingent, however small, had actually made it to the mainland, you know. Yeah. You know, we've probably got less than 10 minutes here, we can beat this thing to death for the next three hours, but we won't. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe we can talk later, or we can do a short one about some of the other stuff, yeah. like the Annie Jacobson thing and the the uh, yeah. different similarities and differences between the person you talked to from Area 51 and her Area 51 person. I yeah. found that fascinating, too. Are you going to? Yes, you are. I believe we're both going to be on the speakers thing at Roswell this year. Speaking of Roswell, yeah, I'm actually going to be. I'm going to be speaking about uh, the new book, and you know, be sort of fully illustrated uh, PowerPoint and whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we're there like five days, aren't we, or something like that? Yeah, a, a, a huge amount of time. The weird thing is that yeah. I've never been flown to Roswell. They wanted to I fly me directly to the Roswell airport. Oh, yeah, I do that. When I've been, I go direct from DFW all the way to Roswell. Really? Because i got to go through um, Phoenix and then take a little commuter plane with, like, ten people on it to, <laughs> to, no, fly, to the fly, old... I actually fly on um, United Airlines all the way. Oh, okay. Well, re- remember to wear, you know, f- uh, football out f- uh, helmet and stuff when they start beating you, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's Roswell is from yeah twenty ninth through the second 
the cool thing about uh, Guy Malone and the people that are putting this together is they don't particularly care what you and I or anybody else they invite say. They just don't no, care. No, they're, they're quite open, and they're, that's good. I mean, you know, I get on fine with Guy, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk at his conference, and I think, you know, it's... Um, it's good that we can all kind of share different views and opinions, and you know that that's what ufology should be about—not just saying what people want to hear or yeah. saying what you think people want to hear. So that should be good, you know. It'll give plenty of time for people to sort of roast me on a spit or whatever, or they can try. I should say. You know. Oh, good. Well, then I'll bring video. Uh, it, that's the twenty ninth, twenty ninth through the second, I believe, twenty ninth of. Um, uh, June through uh, July 2nd. And it would be kind of fun, though, if I actually really did get into, like, a fist fight with one of the true believers. That would be kind of like a... <laughs> have, you ever actually come, about... have you ever actually come to blows with another researcher? No, I actually haven't. I mean, I've had a lot of... Heat yeah, because Bill, Bill Cooper is not around, that's why. Yeah, but, I mean, it would be kind of fun, you know, sort of beating the crap out of somebody in, the, in you know, Roswell's main street as the <laughs> carnival goes by or whatever, you know what I mean? You, you are going to wear the Doc Martens, right? Because you need that for, for yeah. ki- kicking yeah, people's heads. Of, um, in the- <laughs> yeah. Steel toe caps, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that. Nick has another interview coming up in 20 minutes. So um, I'm going to let him uh, leave and prepare for that and have, you know, five beers so that he can uh, stand up to the questioning from, who is it, Rosemary, Ellen Guiley? Yeah, I'm doing um, Rosemary Ellen Guiley's show tonight now. Did you say you had interviews almost every day for the next, like, three weeks? Yeah, I've got, like, uh, I think there's just three nights um, between now and the end of the month when there isn't one show about the book. Most of them are sort of, like, either 30 minutes or an hour so you know but uh, i mean i don't you know that's what it's part of the job you know um it's like a band's got a new record out they go on tour you know i have a book out i go on the radio yeah or conference exactly all right nick thanks so much uh go on to other interview what's what song would you like me to play when uh as as this outro uh, you get to pick. i know what, what about uh men in black by frank black oh okay let me find that one that's a good that's a really good song do you know that one Yes, there it is. Frank Black, Men in Black. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I'll let you know exactly what's going on, and we'll chat before the uh, All right. before the gig anyway. So. You know, Frank Black looks like Guy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> he does a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. I think I think Guy is a lot. I think Frank Black has a little bit more meat on him, but yeah, he kind of looks like kind of looks like Guy Malone. <laughs> <laughs> he does a bit. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for having me on the show. Uh, all right. Thank, thanks for taking the time. Talk to you soon. Yeah, no problem at all. All right. I'll see you later. Okay. See ya. Okay. Bye. bye. Nick hung up on me. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, thanks so much, Nick. Um, enjoy Frank Black's Men in Black, and we, we will see you soon here on Radio Mysterioso. I'm waiting.
you believe